0: Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
1: Hello and welcome in to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, November 4th. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. I personally didn't get up to too much myself. In all honesty, I'm actually a little bit surprised. I don't feel more sick today. Uh, I went to the grocery store on Saturday, picked up two big boxes of candy, and proceeded to stuff my face from Saturday afternoon right through to last night. Yes, Halloween candy, of course, is on sale. And uh, I also bought myself a dozen Halloween-themed vanilla cupcakes. Those are all gone. Uh, I'm not sure whether to feel you know, proud of myself or incredibly disgusted today. Honestly, I feel a little bit of both. Um, I also thought multiple times about uh, you know how I should probably be going to the gym or get myself a gym membership or something along those lines over the course of my eating fest. Um, but of course that would involve peeling myself off of the couch. And I thought uh, you know who needs to sit up to watch NFL football all day on Sunday anyways, so I didn't bother doing that. Um, I did manage to get out of the house for a short time to return some recyclables. Now that those deposit numbers went up, so I was able to take advantage there. Uh, and I also went and took a quick look around at those post Halloween sales. Like I mentioned, pick myself up some, uh, some, uh, well, let's just say a little too much candy. Definitely bought too much candy. Um, but we'll see how long it takes me to regret that. And, uh, pick myself up a treat or two as well when it comes to the decorations and costumes and things like that. So although it wasn't the most productive of weekends for me, I did get my laundry done. My apartment got a little bit cleaner and uh, I probably have a new cavity as well. So safe to say, I have definitely done worse over the course of a two-day span. All right, that's enough about my recap of my incredibly... Fun weekend or however you want to look at it. I had fun. So that's all that matters. On today's show, I will be having my usual Monday morning chat with Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Um, I'll also be joined by Dr. Mohammed Morshed with the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. He is said to be in Kamloops tomorrow morning to give a lecture at Royal Inland Hospital's CSB Ken Lepham Theater. That'll start around 730 in the morning. So, he will be presenting on ticks and tick borne illnesses. Now, things like Lyme disease and tick paralysis will, of course, be a part of that conversation as well. Now, although it is winter and we aren't, uh, you know, really talking or thinking about things like ticks and Lyme disease, we aren't, uh, apparently, we aren't completely out of the woods when it comes to ticks. Uh, Dr. Morschet actually told me earlier that uh, although rare, tick sightings do happen in the winter, and it is just one more thing that you should be checking for. Not so much of an issue around here, but if you are maybe going to the island or something along those lines and you're taking your dog with you you know it's just one more thing to to just have in your mind of course people likely walking around with a lot of clothing on during winter months so probably not much of a risk to people at that time but again your pets are still a bit of a liability unless uh, you know you dress them up in a snowsuit as well which I have seen but uh, I don't see very often so chances are if you're going for a hike you don't have your dog suit on and uh, this information definitely does pertain when looking ahead to spring and summer months of course as well Now, although we haven't officially started winter yet... Who doesn't like thinking about the warmer weather, right? So ticks and Lyme disease, that comes with the warm weather. Or on the flip side, maybe talking about ticks and Lyme disease will make you more excited for winter because it is just one less thing that you really do need to worry about. Whichever way you want to look at it is fine by me. So my chat with Dr. Morsha will be coming up to kick off the back half of today's program. And again, the public is welcome to attend Dr. Morsha's lecture tomorrow morning at our A- R-I-H, excuse me. And uh, yeah, definitely some inf- interesting information to share in that regard. And to end off today's program, it is time to recap another Blazers weekend. Yes, I will be joined by play-by-play announcer John Keane to break down games in Everett and Portland. The Blazers went 1-1 one one over the two games, grabbing a win south of the border. It was a tough 2-1 to loss in Everett on Saturday, but they salvaged the weekend series with a victory in Portland.
0: Schmeeman fanned on another shot attempt. Now he lets it go. Down low pass behind the net. Coming off here is Barragano. shooting. Scores! Baragato! short. And the Blazers have the lead back. And this is unbelievable stuff here in this game. Now 6-5 Blazers. And, uh, well, we are getting a little bit of a throwback here. Is it retro night? We got a goaltending change now for the Winterhawks. In comes Joel Hofer. <laughs> so all four goaltenders are going to play in this one tonight.
1: It was a tough game for rookie goalie. Race Ramage allowed four goals on 18 shots before Dylan Garan came in and stopped 24 of 25 to help lock things down, getting his ninth W on the season for Camloops And WHL Player of the Month for September and October, Connor Zary is off to another hot start in November with three goals already. So stay tuned to the end of today's show to get a breakdown on all of that and maybe even take a quick look ahead to next weekend where the Blazers are set to play three games in four days, capping things off on Monday night here at home. But first up on today's show, it is defense lawyer Kyla Lee talking about her concerns regarding roadside breathalyzers. The New York Times published an article talking about the unreliability of such tests. It wrote how judges in Massachusetts and New Jersey have thrown out more than 30,000 breath tests in the last year alone. Yeah, 30,000 in 12 months. That's largely because of human errors and lacks government oversight. To quote the article, it says, The machines are sensitive scientific instruments, and in many cases, they have not been properly calibrated, yielding results that were at times 40% too high. Maintaining machines is up to the police departments that sometimes have shoddy standards and lack expertise. This isn't necessarily a new message that we have heard from uh, certain professionals out there when it comes to looking at the science behind these breathalyzers. And of course, it's definitely not something new that I've uh, you know, heard from from Kyla talking about her concerns about roadside tests as well. So we're going to continue that chat that we've had in the past and and talk specifically about what happened in this article because there were a number of stats that were alarming, like the fact that 30,000 breath tests in the last 12 months alone have been thrown out because of human error and lax Government oversight. So we'll be talking all about that with Kyla Lee, and that'll be coming up after the break. So stick around.
0: You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL
1: 610 a.m. News Talk and Radio NL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Monday, November 4th. An article published this weekend by the New York Times talked about a number of issues when it comes to roadside breathalyzers in the United States. As I mentioned heading into the break, one of the uh, alarming stats that was mentioned off the top of this article was how New Jersey and Massachusetts threw out some 30,000 breath tests in the last 12 months alone, largely due to human errors and lax government oversight. So how do those figures compare to what's going on here in Canada, and is there anything that we can learn from this article? Like I said, that was just a a very small point that was made off the top in a very lengthy article, and I'm joined now by defense lawyer with acumen law kyla lee to break this all down kyla thanks so much for joining me
2: thank you for having me
1: so before we get into the details too much here i mean were you surprised by what the author of this article was able to discover because you know some of these numbers seem pretty staggering um and a number of the quotes from legal professionals are, are quite alarming as well
2: I wasn't surprised at all. Um, I mean, the reality is that we know that there are problems with breast, te- breast testing instruments not being properly maintained, calibrated, serviced, um, and problems just with them in design flaws. Um, I have a lot of colleagues in the United States who practice in, in DUI law, um, who've told me about many of the things that they've found and have been involved in some of the challenges men- mentioned in the article. So I kind of knew what was coming when the article came out, but I'm glad that it's out there now and and in the public's uh, in the public's attention.
1: Yeah, uh, like technical experts found, uh, you know, serious programming mistakes in machine software. Um, some states down there have picked devices that their own experts don't trust and have disabled safeguards meant to ensure the test accuracy uh so what the new york times was able to kind of point out is quite concerning from a number of standpoints uh does this translate to here in canada do you you know if you know this these similar concerns that we're seeing here in the united states would also be similar concerns that we're seeing here in canada
2: We absolutely have similar concerns about the overall reliability of breast testing programs and about the the maintenance and, and sort of servicing of the breast testing devices. The problem that we have in Canada is that the mechanisms that the U.S. lawyers and experts were able to use to obtain all of the evidence to show these problems are prohibited in Canadian law. So we can't actually get access to any of the evidence that was used uh, in these cases, because we're not allowed to get it for the purposes of any impaired driving trial.
1: So, I mean, what are you guys pushing for? You obviously must be pushing for some change to that ruling specifically.
2: Absolutely. We just had new restrictions on the disclosure you can get in an impaired driving case implemented um, in Canada as of December last year. Those restrictions have yet to be challenged in a court. And so uh, we will be launching challenges to those. And this New York Times article and the cases mentioned in there I think provide some good foundation for showing why it's not just a fishing expedition to ask for material related to the source code for the devices or more detailed uh, historical Calibration
1: record. Uh, one issue too specifically was relates to um, you know the, the the reliability of the results here. I mean, uh, one uh, man who ran National Patent Analytical Systems was quoted in this article. He was one of the the makers of breath testing devices. He actually said tests were never meant to be used in a way that would be sort of an automatic finding of guilt, and, you know, a lot of these tests seem to pretty much be taken um, at face value. Whatever you blow on the road is is just sort of taken into into the courtroom, and you're automatically found guilty as a result of that test, I guess. So, you know, is that is that a big concern that, you know, even the makers of these systems say, you know, it's sort of just meant to be a, a quick look and, and then sort of go from there for more serious tests? Like, these roadside tests aren't necessarily meant to be the be-all, end-all.
2: No, they were never meant to be the be and all Roadside tests were only ever meant to be used for screening. And tests that were done to determine somebody's blood alcohol level were originally in the criminal code meant to be taken together with other evidence. So somebody could testify about what they had to drink and call into question the reliability of the results in a criminal case. But in 2008, the federal government outlawed that uh, type of evidence. That was found to be a constitutionally valid uh, decision to prohibit people from arguing that their tests were wrong because they only drank two beers. Um, and then in uh, 2018, we saw further amendments that actually put a provision in the criminal code that said breath testing is reliable and capable of producing accurate results, which is completely contrary to what the manufacturers of these devices say. But we're ignoring science and creating laws that are not well supported in scientific research.
1: Why do you think it is that there's such a controversy then between, you know, what some of the makers of these products are saying and, and then what the law is, is enforcing? Because uh, don't you feel like they should be sort of on the same page? The, the makers of these manufacturers should know what they're talking about. And yet, uh, you know, law enforcement or, or those uh, enforcing the laws seem to have uh, a bit of a different stance when it comes to that. I mean, shouldn't shouldn't one be following the other?
2: Oh, Absolutely. Well, any, any good law should be based in solid policy and solid science where science is applicable. Um, when that doesn't happen, when we have laws like this, and we're seeing these types of changes too to our sex assault laws in Canada, um, it's often because of very powerful lobby groups that have criticized low, uh, low conviction rates. Um, they've been upset that people are being acquitted because the evidence doesn't prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it's, it's a failing of, of uh, I think, lobby groups' understanding of our legal system and what our legal system requires in order for a conviction to be founded.
1: Uh, Here with BC defense lawyer Kyla Lee. Um, One concern I also had when reading through this article was just how many different variations of breathalyzer machines are out there. Um, Doesn't that kind of make it difficult to have any consistency among products being used? Like, do you think there should be maybe one sort of standard machine that law enforcement is using? And, And, you know, like I said, this article was looking across the United States. So is that issue the same here in Canada where a number of different machines are in use?
2: Uh, we have only a very limited number of ones that are approved for the purposes of any criminal investigation in Canada. So we don't see the same types of problems where it's you know open to whatever police force to use whatever instrument they want. Um, that being said, most police forces in Canada use one of three different devices, and they all operate on the same testing principle. But the problem with that testing principle is that it's the most susceptible to false readings and the most susceptible to uh, flagging somebody as over the limit when in fact they're not.
1: Um, And and this article also does point out, uh, you know, different law enforcement agencies disabling important quality control checks. Uh, One example used was in Minnesota where officials found that uh, the fuel cell systems in their data master device often broke down. So rather than fixing the problem, technicians simply turned off that portion of the machine. Um, Is that something that can potentially happen here in Canada as well? Like like I mentioned, obviously, there's a number of products in the states where this is potentially more of an issue. Does that same issue correlate here uh, north of the border?
2: That same issue does happen here. We have the devices that are used to test people in criminal investigations currently programmed to do something called a blank check. It tests the instrument to make sure there's no alcohol from any other source left over from a previous person or remaining from the alcohol standard inside the instrument. And what they've done is they've said the blank check is supposed to be zero, but we're gonna treat anything less than 10 as zero you can have enough alcohol left on the fuel cell to elevate your reading to be over the legal limit and the machine will just say that's okay that's fine you're over the limit because nine is the same as zero
1: Man, and and I guess, what, what advice then do you have for people who are being subject to uh, a roadside test who, you know, truly believe that they are under the legal limit? Like they had a, a light beer at dinner and now they're being forced to take a breathalyzer on the side of the road and there is some worry amongst them. Um, I mean, what what advice do you have? I mean, you can't refuse it because that's another charge in and of itself. So what, what do you as defense lawyer uh, believe uh, people should be doing to make sure they are protecting themselves? The best advice I have is to get as
2: much evidence to confirm what you drank and when and where you were and what you did as possible, statements from everyone you were with, receipts. Try and go to the hospital. Try and get a blood test. Try and go to a lab if one's open to get a a private blood test done if you're able to. They're very difficult to get, but if you're able to do it, do it. Um, And if you're in the lower mainland, contact us. We have access to breath testing equipment, and we would subsequently test you as well to see if there was an aberrant reading um, and, you know, hopefully get uh, a different results, so.
1: Uh, I just want to also uh, reiterate that the the point of this conversation isn't so that more people can get away with drinking and driving. The article follows one case yeah. of a man named uh, Matthew Motter or Motor. Um, I won't summarize the entire case because that could take a while but his situation was essentially that uh, he, he had a beer while out on the river, got pulled over blew a, a .13 at a roadside test and then blew a .08 at the police station so two tests had him over the legal limit now if anything went wrong with those tests and he is not guilty of being over the legal limit well now I mean he had a three-month license suspension where he couldn't drive his daughter around or go to work um, and then once he got his license back he hired a lawyer to fight the charges and to pay that bill he was maxing out credit cards uh, raided his retirement fund borrowed money from people that he knew so even at the end of the day if he is able to uh, you know get the charges dropped and have his innocence proven um, his entire life has been completely flipped as a result of the shoddy tests um, so i mean kyler are you still there or have you been dropped Looks like she's been dropped, but... um I mean, this is very concerning here because, uh, you know, there's a lot of cases like this where people are, you know, out there, uh, they haven't had that much to drink on the side of the road, and yet now they're being uh, told that they're drinking and driving and getting a DUI and and facing a lot of uh, legal consequences as a result. And obviously that's not the whole point of this. The point is to keep the road safe. The point is, you know, to keep drunk drivers off the road, not people who are abiding by the law, um, you know, getting them into trouble and kind of ruining their lives and having them raid the the retirement funds. I mean, this is a serious issue um, for, for a number of people. Um, you know, there's a number of other issues that come as a result of these breathalyzer tests. Older women sometimes have trouble producing enough breath to get the machines to work. Uh, apparently, toothpaste, mouthwash, and breath mints, even hand sanitizer and burping could throw off the test results. I mean, there's just so many things could potentially go wrong here. Um, in 2007, the New Jersey Supreme Court granted a request by defense lawyers and ordered uh, Drager, one of the producers, to allow outside experts to analyze the software for the Alco Test 7110 machines that uh, it used statewide. And the experts said it was littered with thousands of programming errors, according to their report to the court. Um, so, just uh, you know, f- after a number of issues with these tests, and and even. Some lawyers being able to test them um, you know these these problems just seem to persist uh, kala i guess we have you back on the line here now
2: yes i'm sorry i don't know what happened
1: there it's okay uh yeah not a lot of time here but i guess just to summarize i mean where where, where is the fight continuing on this issue because uh, you know obviously a number of issues we've gone over here but what what's next to try to continue to make sure that people are being tested properly
2: The next step in Canada is to challenge the laws that the government's put in place that limit your rights to get the information to determine whether the tests were done validly and appropriately in your case. So it's challenging uh, the constitutionality of the limits on the disclosure you can get so that people can have uh, all of the evidence they need to determine whether or not they're, they're actually innocent in their case.
1: Perfect. Well, unfortunately, that does wrap things up here for time-wise. So uh, sorry for dropping you there, but uh, thanks so much for coming back and always love chatting with you on Monday. So thanks so much for doing this, Kyla, and we'll, we'll do it again next week. Thank you. Awesome. That was Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Coming up after the break, Dom- Dr. Mohamed Morshid with the BC Center for Disease Control will be joining me as he is in Kamloops tomorrow for a presentation on ticks and Lyme disease.
0: Awesome.
1: Welcome back in to the Jeff Andrea Show, and thanks as always for tuning in. Tomorrow, Dr. Mohammed Morshed with the BC Centre for Disease Control will be in Kamloops to give a lecture on ticks and Lyme disease. The lecture will be taking place at the R.I.H.C.S.B. csb Ken Leppin Theatre beginning at 7.30 in the morning. I am joined now by Dr. Morshed. Doctor, thanks so much for taking the time.
3: You're most welcome, and thank you for having me on your show.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it. So you know, you're going to be here giving this uh, uh, speech tomorrow talking about ticks and Lyme disease. So let's just start by kind of getting an overall sense of what the prevalence of ticks is in the Kamloops area, and, and maybe just BC as a whole. Like, how big of an issue is this? I know it's, uh, it's November, so maybe isn't the, the best time of month to be talking about ticks, but still something that people should probably be aware of.
3: Yeah, and uh, let us start with, uh, with BC. BC, as you know, that one of the tick uh, dominated province uh, if we compare across canada having said that every year we receive ticks from um, physician veterinarian as well as from public about over 1000 ticks uh, and it comes from all over uh, bc and and among them if you talk about scam loops particularly We don't get that many yearly, maybe from, uh, say, lower 15 to uh, highest about over 50 ticks per year from Kamloops area only. Mm -hmm. But in Kamloops, the ticks that we see mostly Dharma Center and and that is the tick, they do not carry Lyme disease, but they do carry other tick-borne diseases, as for example Rocky Mountain spotted fever. And also another thing that people often forget, this is not a any infectious disease, but it's called tick paralysis. That is also we see from that area, at least few calls that I get every year that um, tick paralysis in a small uh, size pets or small children. So, so those people should be aware as well. But for Lyme disease, you might ask that, is it there, is it not? Yes, it is there because we also see a very small number of exodus specificus and exodus angustostics which do carry Lyme disease bacteria.
1: So, given that, I mean, what is the percentage of ticks, or any idea, sort of how prevalent? We'll talk specifically about Lyme disease, but even those other ones you mentioned as well. Just how likely are you, if you were to get, uh, you know, bitten by a tick, and it were to to burrow in, just how likely is someone to potentially uh, catch something or, or be diagnosed with something as a result?
3: yeah that is an excellent question it depend it depend mean that how long the tick was attached to the individual that's why often i said it is better to remove the tick as soon as they see them on their body most of the tick bone pathogen actually um, do not go right away to the human body or into the pets uh, system so they need to start onto the human body for at least for lyme they need to uh, start for 16 to 24 hours. Similarly for um, uh, tick paralysis, also need to be there for 24 to 48 hours. So if somebody do tick check at the end of their working day or, or outing, and then if they remove it successfully, then uh, I don't think the risk could be that much. It will be extremely minimal risk. Okay,
1: so uh, definitely if you're out there in the woods in an area where ticks are, make sure you are checking yeah. Somewhat frequently for, for exactly. them attached to you. Um,
3: yeah, and and for child, I will I will request parents they should thoroughly check their head and and then body if, if there is anything any ticks and they should remove it immediately.
1: Are those same time frames applicable to pets as well?
3: Yeah, same thing for pets as well because the the the, the pathogenesis means that the, how the disease progress is the same with the human as well as the pet. There's no difference. So and the the also the timing is also the similar. So. Uh, they should do exactly the same thing, what they'll be doing for their children.
1: Okay. Um, and I guess just since we're still on this part of the, the topic, just, uh, you know, if you do find one, what is the best way for people to go about removing one? Because I know that can be something that, uh, you know, there's a lot yeah, of different so ways is out the, there that the, exist.
3: there are kind of uh, myths in the system that you should put some Vaseline on the top of the teak, or you should burn the teak, so they never ever should do that. So, what they need to do if they find a tick, do not get panic and get a pair of scissors uh, and the tweez- uh, and, the, the, and the tweezers and then they just hold the neck of the tick and then just straight pull it upward. no jerking, no pressing, nothing. And it's not very difficult if you if you want to pull it out earlier. But when it is over, 15 or 20 or 24 hours, then they kind of borrowed into the skin, that time it might get difficult. And at that point, I would suggest them to go to an emergency and ask the physician to do their job. Because as as a parent, they get nervous, number one, and number two, they might squeeze the ticks by that way that tick is used as a syringe so when you squeeze you are pushing gut material into the human body so bacteria might go into the system
1: okay and just to clarify you had said scissors there at one point you meant you meant tweezers Tweezer,
3: tweezers tweezers yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah perfect just wanted to
1: double check there so uh, yes. yeah that's it's uh, oh, pretty gross i <laughs> i can't stand the sight of ticks uh, i've dealt with them before in my past i just uh, just picturing it just gives me the shivers a little bit. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm joined here with Dr. Morshed from the uh, BC CDC. Um, so, can we talk a little bit about Lyme disease itself? Because I know this is something that we've talked about in Canada, and, and you know, we've seen like celebrities speak out that they might have it. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I've seen like Avril Lavigne, I believe, was one that talked about, you know, how she had Lyme yeah. disease, but had a lot of yeah. difficulty getting it actually diagnosed. But it seems to be more recognized as a real disease that's out there now. So, um, kind of, what's what's the work being done by the CDC? In in terms of you know studying Lyme disease and just uh, you know maybe what is the process right now or what are the what, what steps have been taken to sort of find some solutions or treatments or, or potentially even cures for this at this point in time what what work is ongoing?
3: Yeah, so the, actually BC is, is is the forefront of doing uh, work on Lyme disease compared to any province uh, in in Canada. Um, we are the first province actually started tick surveillance back in 1990. Five. So um, that time, there was n- not even any people in Canada was doing much work on Lyme disease. So BC is the highly forefront. And since then, the Lyme disease even me- become reportable in 1997 and 1998. Whereas in federally, the Lyme disease became re- reportable in 2009. So you can uh, understand that how far ahead we are. And we are continuously doing research we are continuously p- providing up-to-date diagnostic, and also that the um, and, and BC created a chronic complex um, disease clinic, where that they are starting and researching the cause for the people. They are thinking they do have Lyme, so that uh, as a group, as a team, that we are trying to find that what they do have. Uh, uh, so that's why I think that the uh, BC is the, uh, in the forefront, but CDC. What they are doing in terms of um, uh, diagnosing, as well as treating, as well as for cure, but our responsible, uh, our job is to find the diagnostic solution, as well as the the find the prevalence and uh, of the disease and the where they are distributed, what are the risk, and so on and so forth. For treatment as cures, usually we rely on our physicians and our infectious disease specialist in BC. They are well aware of this disease. What sort
1: of things do they have to be aware of? Like what are the possible symptoms and, and, you know, what sort of treatments are out there to maybe help deal with some of those?
3: Yeah, so Lyme disease is, is really one of the most, uh, complicated uh, and also challenging and serious disease so when, uh, but one thing for sure that people uh, that I would like to the listener know that Lyme disease only transmitted through tick bite only through tick bite there are many literature out uh, like odd literature that you might see they transmit through the breast milk, they transmit from person to person, they transmit through X and Y's we never find any of this Theoretically, they sh- could transmit through the blood transfusion, but we have never seen a documented case so far. So there are many speculations, but so far, only to my knowledge, they transmit only through the tick bite. So that means that you have to prevent the tick bite. So no tick bite, no Lyme disease. That is my, my kind of personal belief. And if somebody gets bitten by ticks, And then if that tick carry Lyme disease bacteria and transmit bacteria to the human body, then they actually bite on the skin. So definitely the bacteria try to localize there. And as a result, we get erythema migraines rash. It's a kind of red patched rash with a center clearing we call bull's eye. And also people get fever. It's kind of flu-like fever. And within a 7 to 14 days, it might turn to a arthralgia and severe headache. So those are the things they will be seeing. And if they treat or not treat, those rashes will be gone within a 7 to 14 days. And then within a, like two weeks to less than three months' time, they might see multiple rashes. Or even they'll see the fever, arthralgia, headache, all those things. And at that point, people might also get a um, uh, problem in their heart and the cerebral nervous system, like aseptic meningitis, all those kind of things. And unfortunately, that also disseminates um, by itself so people get better. And if they don't go to the physician, it he become late disease. That is where the problem comes. And then, even after the treatment, even after the treatment, people have refractory symptoms. As for example, if you understand polio disease, if you are cure of polio, but still they have this lameness, they cannot walk straight, right? Mm-hmm. So many diseases that after even we get cured we have some reminiscence of that particular disease lyme disease is not exception so when people have tertiary or the late disseminated disease although person was given full course of antibiotic but still they could suffer time to time with arthritis suffer time to time with kind of myalgia and fatigue and so on and so forth that's why my suggestion that if somebody is being bitten by tick they should immediately go to their physician and do the testing and treatment whatever the needed and 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 that is the best point. Do not delay.
1: All right. Some good advice right there, I think for sure. Yeah, if you if you're bitten by a tick, go oh, make sure you get yourself checked out. Um I'll get you out of here on this because we've been on at this for a, for a little while here, Dr. Morrishead. But uh, you know, this is uh, November now, so maybe not the the time that people are are thinking about ticks. But you had mentioned this to me before we started our conversation. Just uh, you know, although they're pretty rare, maybe during the winter months, they're not necessarily gone completely. So uh,
3: no, can, yes, that is what that all I'm seeing in my lab. Especially from those islands like those um, uh, Vancouver Island plus um, uh, many of those small islands, we get ticks in the winter months, even in December uh, when there is a middle of snow we see uh, ticks but not in great number great number we see from uh, march to th- june that is the the most of the n- number that we get and those people will be coming to my lecture uh, on tuesday i'll show that we have a distinct seasonality but we are seeing uh, all 12 months uh, in a lower number
1: perfect well if people are traveling definitely something to uh, make themselves aware of well dr morsha thanks so much for doing this i really appreciate you taking the time
3: well, you are most welcome. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks.
1: No problem. That was Doctor Mohammed Morshe with the BC Center for Disease Control, and again, he'll be in Kamloops to give a lecture on ticks and Lyme disease. That will be taking place at the Rih Csb Ken Leppin Theater beginning at 7:30 tomorrow morning. That theater holds about 200 people, and the public is welcome to attend. Coming up after the break, your Cam Loops Blazers scored eight goals over the course of two games. Good enough for one win and one loss over the weekend. I'll be joined by play-by-play announcer John Keene to break it all down after this.
0: Local news now. Radio NL. 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas.
1: Hello and welcome back here on Monday, November fourth. Just some quick breaking news here before we get into a uh, chat with John Keen. Uh, Elizabeth May says she is no longer the leader of the federal Green Party. Uh, May told a news conference today that she's stepping down as leader effective immediately, and appointing deputy leader Joe Ann Roberts as her successor. Uh, Roberts was a Green candidate in Halifax, but uh, was not elected. But she will now be the leader of the federal Green Party. So, uh, with that in uh, now being out there, I'll uh, get John on the phone here, so the Kamloops Blazers are now 10-6 and on the season, sit tied atop the BC Division with Kelowna and tied for third in the Western Conference in terms of points after going 1-1 over the weekend with a 3-2 loss in Everett, followed by a crazy 6-5 win in Portland. Here now is Blazers play-by-play announcer John Keane. John, thanks for joining me. Hey,
0: good morning, Jeff. Yeah, uh, back after another weekend on the road. I know Blazer fans uh, haven't seen their team in a while, but uh, that'll be coming up here uh, on Saturday.
1: How are you feeling here today? I mean, uh, long drive back from Portland there overnight.
0: Oh yeah, great bus driver. Uh, in around uh, just before 5 a.m. or so, so uh, no complaints. And now, uh, you know, quick turnaround, and we're chatting to recap the weekend here, kind of like a weekly Monday segment here that's uh, developing.
1: Hey, I'm trying, I'm trying, and uh, there's no excuse for you because head coach Sean Clueson was on with Howie at like 7:30, so you can't complain.
0: Exactly, and I thought about that, and I said, you know what? Uh, definitely, there's if he can pull this off, then I, I mean, who am I to skip a radio
1: uh, spot, right? <laughs> well, I appreciate it for sure. Um, so let's just start by getting maybe a quick summary of the weekend from you here. I mean, uh, it was definitely an interesting one, uh, with uh, capping off with a crazy night in Portland last night.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it really was a, a crazy night, and you know, and I think the Blazers, uh, you know, the hockey guts have a way of kind of paying you off a little bit after. You know, a stretch in, in Everett uh, Friday, or Saturday, excuse me, where uh, goaltender Dustin Wolf just absolutely stole the show. Um, you know, Blazers fire you know, 48 shots his way, and and he is diving around, literally diving around to make some saves. One save was, uh, I think it went viral, a uh, diving back save on Ryan Hughes. And uh, that was a night where, you know, they're down a goal in the third, and they do you know, shoot... Uh, Everett eighteen to three in that final period, but Dustin Wolf's an all-world goaltender. He's really good, and uh, they couldn't get that one. So that was a bit of a kind of a familiar trend starting to brew a little bit, Jeff, about running into hot goaltenders. And well, can the Blazers do more to score? Yes, they can. They can, you know, get to the net looking for a second or third opportunities here and just bear down a little bit. And you know, they were able to uh, do that the next night, take advantage of maybe some shaky goaltending on the Portland side, uh, and get that six-five win to get the split.
1: Yeah, and uh, obviously they were able to turn things around there on Saturday night. Uh, Ryan Hughes making his return to Portland. Uh, obviously a, a good night him for there, returning back to his old town where he was playing with uh, with the Winterhawks and able to help pull out the win. Um, and that was an interesting one in terms of goaltending. I mean, Dylan Garand uh, looks like he is one of the best in the league here. Um, and what he was able to do last night really helped show that. I mean, he comes in with about, what, five minutes left uh, or 15 minutes left into the second period? How long did he play? 25 minutes. So about five yeah, minutes yeah, left in the second minutes and basically shuts down the Winterhawks from there on, stopping 24-25 and picking up his ninth win of the season. I mean, a, a tough one for race Ramage in there, but, man, uh, Garin is sh- certainly looking like a, like the real deal here.
0: Yeah, you know what? That's one of those rare games where all four goaltenders play. You don't see it very often, right? But the Blazers are the first to make the goaltending change when Portland tied it up for all late in the second period, Uh, and and then it was Portland's turn once uh, Iñaki Baragano restored the 6-5 lead early third to pull uh, Isaiah Delora, and uh, yeah, Dylan Duran, I was joking with him after the game, I'm like, I'm not sure if you're a reliever or a closer, Uh, when it comes to the hockey side of things, and he told me he's both. There you go. Yeah, he was able to to get the win uh, coming in there. And, yeah, some key saves late. Uh, Seth Jarvis had a breakaway, looking to tie the game in that third period. He made a big, big save there. Uh, And it's always tough. You know, I think Dylan Duran prepares exceptionally well for starts. But when it's not your start, I I don't know if you still go through the same routine anticipating that you're going to play. Uh, So he comes in. And you mentioned that yeah, he was quick. He found pucks. He located them, uh, and he made some big saves. And uh, he's definitely key in in uh, getting the Blazers the two points.
1: And uh, not a lot of time here left, John. But uh, Connor he was named WHL Player of the Month for September and October. You wrote an article about that, uh, which you can find on our website. Uh, after he led the league in scoring with five goals and sixteen assists for twenty-one points, uh, he wasted no time getting on the board here in November with three goals over the weekend. I mean, this kid looks like he's really determined to be a top twenty pick right now.
0: Yeah, he is. You know, you know he, he every night he shows up and plays hard and just finds a way to contribute every night. Uh, sometimes it's, it's a minor contribution, but uh, like last night, it's a major one, two goals. And, you know, it, it's funny. He actually took a penalty that led to the Winterhawks a go-ahead goal, Uh, but 11 seconds after they scored that goal, he comes in and wraps home a puck and ties the game and kind of things like that, right? Like he knows he made a mistake, got his stick up a little bit, comes right back and scores, continues to get all the talk. We had to wait around for another uh, NHL scout interview with him last night. I think it was the Detroit Red Wings he was chatting with last night. So, you know, um, great for him. He's motivated. Uh, He's having a great start to the season, and that's going to be fun to watch here down the stretch.
1: Perfect. Well, thanks so much for doing this, John. And uh, we'll look ahead to hearing you again here on Friday night when uh, the Blazers are in Seattle. So thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah, you betcha. Thanks, Jeff. Talk to you soon.
1: Right on. That was Blazers play-by-play announcer, John Keane, And as I mentioned, the Blazers will be on the road to Seattle on Friday before returning home Saturday against Medicine Hat. And then they'll take on arch-rival Kelowna on Monday, Remembrance Day. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow at 9.